What a wonderful morning already. I feel like we could just close here. I've been so blessed by the scripture reading, the prayer, the singing, the chiming. It's a, it's a wonderful time of year as we celebrate the birth of Christ. And so naturally this morning, I'm going to talk about the gift of tongues. <laughs> we are indeed continuing our series this morning. We will talk about the birth of Christ next week at our Christmas service. As we begin, I want to tell you something that you probably already know, and that is communication is central to life. Without it, we would be lost. Outside of my weekly preaching ministry and my discipleship ministry, since planting this church 10 years ago, my most often or most frequent ministry within this church has been marriage counseling. And not one of those couples has ever come to me without being helped simply by improving and thinking about communication. It's always about communication. Every relationship is built upon communication, relaying but also receiving information. Even in our individual personhood, we seek to communicate because it is so essential. Even when we are alone, we turn on the news, we want to receive information, we want to be communicated to. I mean, think about it. Think about your own life. Why do you have a cell phone in your hands, in your pocket right now, in your purse? Communication. Why are you on social media? Communication. Why do you go on dates? Communication. Why did Zoom explode during shelter in place? Communication. Why do you teach babies to speak? Well, if you're Asian, it's so they get good grades someday. But for everyone else, communication. It's all about communication. And it is the importance of communication that Paul stresses in our passage this morning where the apostle continues to stress that tongues are an inferior spiritual gift because they don't communicate. Still powerful, still from the Lord, but not as helpful as the other gifts that would communicate God's truth. We saw him compare the gift of tongues to the gift of prophecy last week, and he continues this week by explaining in more detail why tongues are not as valuable. Now, although most of the gifts that he mentions, not all, but most that he mentions this morning, no longer exist in the church today, we can still apply these truths to modern-day spiritual gifting, as well as service to the church, service to others, as well as the importance of communication within the church and in your own relationships. We will look at this morning, verses 6 through 12 of 1 Corinthians 14. I invite you to follow along as I read. 1 Corinthians 14, 16 through 12. Paul continues in his teaching on spiritual gifts, and he says this, he writes this, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, 
how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Four arguments this morning. Four arguments for the inferiority of tongues. The first of the four arguments for the inferiority of tongues is the addition of communication. The addition of communication. We see this in verse 6, which I'm going to read for you again. He says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? The writer, Paul, is an apostle. An apostle. Someone used by God to record the scriptures and to establish the church. Not church planting in 2011, establish the church, the first ever churches, the universal church. And not only that, we know that Paul is the most prominent of the apostles, evidenced by the fact that we have read many of his epistles on Sunday mornings. Yet even if this great man of God, writer of Scripture, foundation of the church, were to come to the Corinthians speaking in tongues, he says there would be no profit without the practice of another gift which clearly communicates. To be clear, he isn't saying that these four gifts, revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching, are to be practiced in tongues. He is contrasting them as something that would need to be practiced in addition to tongues if his visit, if his presence, were to be profitable to the church. Because tongues alone is of no benefit. Now let's look at these four spiritual gifts. Again, the point is not to highlight these gifts. The the point is to de-highlight the gift of tongues. But I want to explain these. These four spiritual gifts are connected. We've seen them already in our study of 1 Corinthians. Revelation, the reception of truth directly from God, is needed in order to prophesy communicating that truth that has been revealed. Knowledge, insight, and understanding of God's truth is needed in order to teach, instructing others of that truth for which you have knowledge, insight, and understanding. They're also connected in that you have two gifts that are internal, revelation and knowledge, and two that are external. They are actions, prophecy, and teaching. Now, although he is speaking hypothetically, Paul does so to make a point. The point is this, that there are no positive results within the church. There is no enrichment of the church if they don't understand what he's saying. There's nothing deeply spiritual about that. If you don't understand someone who is speaking in a foreign language, it is of no profit to you. You cannot train new employees in a foreign language. That will not help. You cannot give directions in a foreign language. They will get lost. There's no benefit to that. Maybe you enjoy watching a foreign film sometimes, reading the subtitles. 
But if any of you have lived in a foreign country and all you get on television is foreign languages, you understand how frustrating it can be, how useless that television is. It just literally doesn't make any sense to you. And so he is saying, if you don't understand what I'm saying, what's the point? There is no profit. In other words, the point of the passage is clear and comprehensible communication. That is what he's talking about. Without it, Paul says, there is no profit, there is no value, there is no help, there is no key word here throughout the passage, throughout the chapter, throughout the book, edification. There is no edification if you don't understand. Profit, edification as we've seen, especially within the church, is the goal of all service and all communication for the Christian. I'm going to say that again because it is so important. Profit in the form of edification is the goal of all service and all communication within the church among Christians. But with tongues, because it involved a foreign language, there is no true communication. There is no clarity. And that leads us to our second, second argument for the inferiority of tongues, the absence of clarity. The absence of clarity. Look at verses 7 through 9 again. He says, he gives this illustration. He says, even in lifeless things, things that have no soul, no blood, they're not alive, either the flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. So Paul illustrates his point with musical instruments. If they are unintelligible, if someone is just strumming the guitar without knowing what they're doing, if someone grabs one of these hand chimes and just starts banging it around, it's not a song. It's not music. There is no proper clarity. And if that is true, how much more is this true of human communication, languages, speech, listening? He begins in this illustration with representatives from the family of wind instruments, the flute, and the family of strings, the harp. Again, without playing a distinct sound with distinct notes, you have no idea what is being played. There's no melody. It's just noise. It's not music. It is commotion. You knew as the hand chime choir began that they were playing a song. And then when it became a song that you are familiar with, it became even more of a blessing to you as you probably rehearsed and sang along as they played. But if they had not practiced, if Ginny had said, we're going to play on December 12th and I'm going to come. Everyone just pick something, one in each hand, and just go at it. It would be horrible. It would be nothing. It would be something we would scratch off of the recording. It's just commotion. And by the way, this would have especially resonated with the ancient Corinthians. 
because their city was home to one of the great ancient music halls with seating of up to 20,000 people. And back then, music played a more prominent role in society than in ours. It does play a prominent role, especially in the church, but not so much in society. Music back then was used for education. It was used for poetry. It was used, of course, for religion and entertainment as we have today. And he goes on in verse 8 and says the same idea can be illustrated in the military bugle that he mentions. With the invention of wireless radios still hundreds of years away, armies were signaled by the trumpet, the bugle. Different distinct tones would be played to signal various orders. But if the melody is no melody at all because the notes are played at a jumbled fashion, then nobody will prepare for battle because the call to battle is not truly sounded. In the same way, if the phrase to get ready for battle is get ready for battle and the commander never says those words, then no one's going to get ready for battle. And to go through the field so that everyone can hear the bugle would be sounded. You understand this. You've, you've seen this in various places. They would know that the guy up on the tower has indicated that the enemies are approaching and so shields up, spears in hand, bow and arrow at the ready. But if it's not that tune, uh, he's just practicing. Someone's just messing with it. Now he brought his kid to work again. He's playing with the bugle. Is that? No. No, they're not coming because that's not the tune. So they wouldn't know. Why didn't you ready your weapons? You never told us to. The battle call was not communicated. What was played meant nothing to the soldier. Yes, notes were blown, but if they are not the proper notes, the blowing is unprofitable. It is useless. In fact, it would cause more commu- probably more confusion and anxiety among the soldiers. What are they playing? What does that mean? Yes, sound is coming out of the person's mouth, but without an interpreter of the gift of tongues, the sounds are useless. I'm not edified. I'm not prepared. I'm not called to repent. And that's how Paul rounds this out in verse 9. The issue is not that the tongue did not utter speech. Here, tongue, the word tongue referring to the physical organ. It did. It was saying something. But that speech was not clear to the listener or listeners. The musician, in using the illustrations, would say that there was no differentiations in pitch, rhythm, length of note to distinguish what was played as communicative rather than mere noise. Remember in grade school when you learned that great word, cacophony? Cacophony. They always teach that word. And what was that illustration that every teacher used? When the orchestra is warming up, they're not really playing music, they're just warming up. It's a jumble of sounds. It's a cacophony. This is what Paul's talking about here. Yes, the violin is playing. Yes, the drums are being beaten. But it's not music. It's just noise. And in the same way, without the right words that are understood by the audience, then what is being said, though in actual language, understand, that someone somewhere would understand, it is mere noise. 
and it's not understood by anyone who is present. He uses the word clear referring to the speech. That means well-marked, distinct, clear, intelligible in the ESV and NIV. You understand this. You could even go further outside of his point and say that's even true when, when people mumble or they slur their speech. You don't understand what they're saying. Without that clarity, he says, you are just speaking into the air. We have similar phrases. We're just talking into thin air. It vanishes. It doesn't hit home. It doesn't reach its intended target. Or maybe you say this, especially if you're a parent, I feel like I'm speaking to a brick wall. The idea is that it's not being received or absorbed by another person. It's just disappearing, dissipating, bouncing back. That's what this phrase Paul uses means. It floats off into the air rather than into the minds and hearts of those who are listening. But here it's not because they are ignoring you. It's not because they hear you, but they're just being stubborn. No, it's because what you're saying literally doesn't make any sense to them. It's a foreign language. There's an absence of clarity There's an absence of meaning. This is a great reminder, by the way, that communication is not just about what you say, but what other people hear and understand. It is a two-way street. It's not enough to just speak words if the listener does not understand you, whether because you are not being clear, because you're speaking above their level using words that the child doesn't understand, for example, or as here, not even speaking in a common language. There's an absence of clarity. And so to highlight the inferiority of tongues, he says, what's the point if there's no interpreter, as he'll explain more later in the chapter, but if nobody understands you? Nobody speaks that language as compared to teaching, preaching, prophecy, even just, hey man, how are you doing? How'd you do, how'd it go this week? Would be more profitable than the gift of tongues in this scenario because of the absence of clarity. Let me give you a third argument for the inferiority of tongues, the actuality of comprehension. The actuality of comprehension. Verses 10 and 11. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. I really like that Paul does this. He makes a strong point, but then he clarifies it with some footnotes, as I believe he does here in verse 10. He dials it back a little bit, so to speak, so that people don't just ditch the importance of languages altogether. And what he is saying is that we know that since the Tower of Babel, there have been many languages, and the number of languages has only grown over time. And when Paul says, no kind is without meaning, he is reminding us that every language makes sense to those who speak the language. Remember, the gift of tongues was not gibberish, It may sound like gibberish to someone who doesn't understand that language, but the gift of tongues was speaking in an actual known language somewhere around the world. 
but it's not really a language to the listener if it doesn't have, or it wouldn't be a language, period, if it didn't have meaning. French may mean nothing to you, but still has meaning to the speaker and to those who speak French or understand French. In fact, more to our point, if you looked up the word language in the dictionary, you would clearly find the word communication somewhere in its definition. And that's our point. We need to communicate. But, again, if you are with someone who is speaking a language that you do not understand, for you, there is no meaning. There is no true communication. This is what he says in verse 11. Paul says that in this situation, we are barbarians to each other because of the lack of comprehension. In other words, it's not about a lack of logic or truth or power. The reality, the actuality of the matter is that without understanding or interpretation, there is no comprehension. And I want to explain that the word barbarian, as Paul uses it in his context, does not have the same sense that we tend to use it uh, today as we understand it. Conan the barbarian or Tarzan, someone who is savage, someone who is brutal, uncivilized. No, back then it simply referred to someone who didn't speak Greek. It was a foreigner, those who did not speak the same language as the person speaking. And this was used in a general sense, not just of Greek. If anyone uh, spoke a language that they didn't understand, they would say, you're a barbarian. It's uh, actually another fancy word you learned in grade school, onomatopoeia. Remember that? A word that just they just take what it sounds like and then they just turn that into a word, and it's said that the ancient uh, Greeks and even the Egyptians used this, this word in classification. If someone, didn't, uh, someone was speaking a language you didn't understand, it just sounded like bar, 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 bar. And so that's actually where the word barbarian comes from. And you can see at the height of the Greek world, and we understand from studying ancient history that they were a very arrogant people. They had much influence. They considered themselves the pinnacle of education and art and philosophy, the epitome of class and culture. So they turned that word, which was general for anyone speaking a foreign language, and said, no, if you don't speak specifically Greek, you are barbarian because Greek is supposed to be the language. And you can see how this word picture would resonate with the ancient Corinthians. It wasn't hundreds of people groups considering hundreds of other barbarians in the context of so many different languages. It was simply Greek or not Greek. And in the end, the point is that you have two people who are incomprehensible to one another, and so they are essentially foreigners to each other. I mean, think about it. Think about the last time this happened to you. One of the beauties of living specifically in California and even more specifically the Bay Area is what we like to call the melting pot, right? Look around you this morning. And it may be fun while you're out with your family in San Francisco and you run into a foreign tourist and you gather that they're trying to get to Fisherman's Wharf but they don't understand you and you don't really understand them. It may be fun at first. Hey, kids, look, there's, a, there's someone from another land. Where are you from? But ultimately, if the conversation continues or tries to continue, it's frustrating. It's alienating. 
and it creates a barrier between you and the foreigner. And when you are the foreigner, you have that uneasy feeling that you are clearly lost and you are somewhere where you do not belong. Now you take all of that, the barrier, the alienation, feeling like you don't belong into the context of spiritual gifts and the church, and you see why Paul has a problem with the way the Corinthians are practicing the gift of tongues. It's not edifying. It's not neutral. It's actually causing factions. It's causing problems. And if I may add even more depth to this or share with you the added depth that God adds, the Greek word translated meaning here in this verse is actually the Greek word for power. There is power in communication, but none of that power exists without comprehension. It does not matter how powerful the boxer's punch is if he just punches into the air and never lands that punch. It doesn't matter how powerful your technology is if that technology does not land in the hands of anyone who can use it. And there, are word, there, are, there is power in words. We know that. Words are powerful. Ask your kids to remember something from your trip five years ago. And a lot of it will be things that you said, especially if they were especially meaningful or especially angry. There's power in words, but the power, the meaning, is lost without comprehension. There is no power for me. Even if you are speaking and quoting the Scriptures, if you are speaking from a translation of the Bible that is in a language that is foreign to me. Power in the Word of God? Absolutely. For me, no. Because I don't understand. And the problem with the Corinthians is that they were bragging about this power and blind to the fact that there was, in fact, no power because nobody understood. And they didn't care. They didn't care because they wanted to show off this spiritual gift. They wanted everyone to see. They were bringing attention to themselves. Isn't this the whole point of the passage? Paul says, edify, 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 because you're not edifying. You don't even care to edify. And so although they felt powerful, there was actually no power. But isn't that how it is with pride and arrogance and bragging? We feel powerful. We feel like we're big because our egos are big. But nobody else sees that. Nobody else feels that. Nobody else agrees with that. You're just annoying. The same way if you were to continually speak a foreign language in church that nobody understands. So, the actuality of comprehension is that power only exists if there is indeed comprehension, despite the fact that every language has meaning. Backtracking through our outline, there's no comprehension due to the absence of clarity. And without that clarity, tongues have no profit. So even Paul can only be helpful to the Corinthians should he come in addition with teaching or prophesying. So what do you do? What do you do? 
Our fourth and final argument for the inferiority of tongues is the abundance of capability. We've seen the addition of communication, the absence of clarity, the actuality of comprehension, and finally, the abundance of capability. And this capability is speaking of you as a believer. Verse 12, So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Clearly, the Corinthians are passionate about their spiritual gifts, even though many of them sinfully so or in a sinful way. Here, the word spiritual is different than what he used in 12.1 and 14.1. It refers to spiritual manifestations. It can refer to spiritual gifts, but not just that. So he's basically saying, since also, since, so also you, since you are zealous of spiritual things, spiritual manifestations, whether gifts or otherwise. But regardless, the point is the same. Paul is saying, since you're so passionate about these spiritual outworkings, then harness that passion for the edification of the church. Whatever it is, since you're so excited to study the Word, harness that excitement to edify the church. Since you're so excited for the special music at Christmas time, take that passion and edify the church. Edification, as we've seen, is building up the body of Christ through the use and practice of the Word of God. It increases the faith of others and strengthens their walk with God. And think about that. We've said that before. How do you increase the faith of others? How do you strengthen their walk with God? You cannot, but God can, and God can through you by using the Word of God. Did you catch that? This is only possible if you are using the Word of God. If you're using psychology, it's not going to work. If you're appealing to emotions and if you're being emotional, it's not going to work. If you're using fortune cookie cliches, stereotypes, whatever it is, it's not going to work, but the Word of God does edify. Not just quoting it, which is important, not just pointing people to it, which is important, but applying it to the San Francisco Bay Area, to whatever situation they're going through. It's the Word of God. So, use God's Word to build up the church. So take that zeal, Paul says, that makes you show off your gift of tongues, that passion that, that intense desire for others to pay attention to you and use it for the edification of others. Channel your zeal for the building up of the local church because all else is subordinate to that. Again, Paul's not trying to do away with God-given gifts. But they do need to be guided, they need to be tamed, they need to be directed so that their ambition for spiritual power is then harnessed towards other people to edify them, to build them up. And when we do that, this verse clues us in to the manner in which we are to practice edification. He says, seek to do it. And that again is in the Greek tense that says continual, habitual action. Don't just feel guilty that you're not serving. Don't just feel guilty that your words tear down and then say, I'm going to edify and then I'm done. You keep doing it. This should be the drive of your life until you are dead or Christ returns. 
And also he says, seek not just to edify, but to abound in edification. To be over and above. Whatever you're doing now, in terms of edification, do more. See, this is the great thing about the principles of Scripture like excellence and excel still more and abound. There's no cap. There's no maximum. There's no upper limit. You can keep doing it. For me, that's one of the joys of the Christian life. I don't want to wake up and say, I have arrived. I want to continue running the race that God has set before us, before me, to do better, to repent more, and then find something else to repent of. And most likely, after a while, go back and repent again of something I've repented of already. And when it comes to edification, do better. Go deeper. Whatever it is, however that looks like. If you're not doing it at all, uh, let's, let's go further than that. If you're just a nasty person, if, you, if you, your words tend to tear down, you can start by being quiet and then start edifying. And then when people say, man, you're really encouraging, edify even more. Maybe it means memorizing more Scripture so you're not fumbling, oh, what was that verse I want to see? And so you know it to edify. Maybe it's being more involved so that you know people, you know how to edify. There are many people who go to church say, I don't know who to edify. It seems like everyone's doing well because they're not involved. No, let people know how to edify you. That edifies them. Enough with my old roommate's ex-wife's cousin's son is sick. Please pray for him. What are you going through? How can we pray for you? Moving does not need that much prayer, guys. A safe airplane ride does not need that much prayer. How can we pray for you? How can we edify? Let's be a church that knows how to edify. Have you ever noticed, and this may be completely lost on some of you, and I dare say, men, this is probably more something we struggle with. Have, have you ever noticed that when you see or hear something negative about someone you know, your first instinct is, I want to go tell them that. I want to confront them. But when you are encouraged and you want to praise them, you praise him behind his back to everyone and you never say it to that person. Why is that? Why is that? We're so quick to want to criticize and bring people down to their face. And because we're Christians, we do see positive, but then we tell everyone except that person. Why is that? I'll tell you why it is. It's depravity. It's sin. It's pride. We need to edify. Abound. You have not arrived, and you never will until you see Christ face to face. And then at that point, there's really no need for edification. There's no need to build up because we will all be glorified and perfect. We need to edify. And the first step is stop breaking down. Stop tearing down. You know, tearing down is a lot easier than building up in anything. Go, go on YouTube 
I mean, as a general principle, I don't want anyone to go on YouTube, but stick with me. And watch the destruction of a building. It's fascinating. Boom, 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 boom. Gone. Then go back and find the YouTube video that lasts four million hours of when they were building that building. Sandcastles, anybody? Dominoes, house of cards, I don't know, what do you build, right? Tear down. It's easy. Build up takes a long time. We have been in a situation, the deacons and myself, where we have been trying to build up, build up, build up a certain individual. And that individual gets one call from an unbeliever in her family and all of the building up is torn down in one answering machine message. It's so easy to tear down. Some of you are tearing down without even knowing it. And so you need to self-evaluate and start building up, building up, building up. And as you pray for the Spirit's guidance, He will direct you. And my friends, you need to start building up those specific individuals that you have torn down. Let me pull this all together for us who live in a time when the gift of tongues is no longer available. Regardless of spiritual gift, edification is the main thing. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You had this big introduction the week before to tell us that love was the main thing. Didn't you say love is the main thing? Yes, I did. So which is it? Love or edification? Yes. Because in the context of serving, they are the same thing. In the context of using your spiritual gifts, they are the same thing. Because love is not love without action. And what kind of action does God want? Not tearing down, not neutrality, not being distant. It's edification. It's building up. I can show you dozens of verses that may not specifically command, co- command us to edify, but talks about being complete in Christ. Who we are, what He wants, the pure bride. When it comes to serving, are they not in essence love and edification the same We live in the Bay Area. We work hard. Not a single one of you here is not tired. We're all tired. Some of you are tired because you just had a baby. You were tired before you had that baby. I tell people we're not from this area. When I preach and use the illustration of the 40-hour work week, you guys look at me like I am totally out of touch. Nobody here works only 40 hours. You know that. 40-hour work week is a joke in the Bay Area. And we're all tired. Whether you're a new mom, a bachelor, whatever. But you make time for what you want to do. I know people who are exhausted who still go to the gym. I know people who say they don't have time to do anything in the church who take plenty of vacations. 
go out with friends, drive far distances to eat at a restaurant they want to try. Yes, you're tired, but you have time. You have passion. The question is, what are you passionate about? We are passionate about those things. We are passionate about working out or whatever those, the results of working out are. We are passionate about our vacations. We are passionate about our food. We are passionate about our movie nights, whatever. In other words, we have an energy and a zeal to accomplish that which is most important to us. And what I am telling you right now is the edification of the church needs to be most important to you. It has to be. It needs to be. We need you to make it a priority. You need me to make it a priority. You have the energy. You're passionate about something and you make time for what you're passionate about. And Paul is saying, and I understand I'm stretching this outside of the gift of tongues, use that passion, that energy, that excitement to build up the church. Can you really tell me? Can you tell me? Anything that is more worthy of your time to help mature a child of God. And they help mature you. We need each other. We've talked about this throughout this series on spiritual gifts. I just heard yesterday of a dear couple in our church whose daughter was supposed to get hand surgery for carpal tunnel. Hand surgery. And the surgeon said no because she had an infection in her tooth. Because it's all connected. We're all connected. And to edify, you must communicate to others in a way they understand and in a way that reflects the goal of edification, in other words, with God's Word. Self-focus and the focus on secular things lacks clarity and is devoid of the power to edify. Seeking comfort and personal entertainment does not communicate to others in the church and fails to build them up. Seek God. And bring others along. We use that definition for edification in your life. Seek God and bring others along. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification 
of the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for so much instruction on so many details, not only of the Christian church today, but even the Christian church 2,000 years ago. But we thank you even more that the overarching theme and lesson before we get lost in all the details is that we are to edify. We have the privilege of edifying. We have the ability to edify. Father, help us to abound in edification, to seek continually and constantly. Show us where we are not edifying. Show us where we are tearing down. Show us where we can edify, who we can edify even more and then excel beyond that. Thank you for your word that is so clear. Thank you for your word that does the work of edification. And thank you that we can be the vessels of that. Build us up, Lord, by your grace, by your spirit, by your word, and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand as we close in song.